and welcome to the Merely Human Ministries podcast. This is Jay Watts, your host, the president and founder of Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to the first of our podcast. This is our first run at this kind of content. And when we were thinking about this, when the board of directors of Merely Human Ministries were talking about what we wanted to do and we were planning about how we wanted to provide resources for the people that would visit our website or that we would try to get in contact with through our social media efforts, the idea of how to use this was a question that we answered by saying, this should be an extension of the talks. And what I mean by that is everywhere I go when I give talks, whether it's in front of high schoolers, whether it's in front of college students, whether it's at churches and professional organizations, one of the first things that people ask when they come up is, is there a spot on your website where I can get more of this? Not just what we heard, but more. And so what this is going to do is offer us the opportunity to go into areas where I get questions during presentations, where there's sections of each particular presentation that we give or different talks that I give, where under normal circumstances, if we were having a talk sitting around a table over dinner, if we were having any opportunity to be social with each other and this came up, we could explore these topics with a little bit more time, but in the restraints of a talk in front of a group in a platform situation, you just have less time to handle it. So that was where we want to focus it. That does not mean that we will not ever cover current events. We will. But oftentimes what we'll do is try to take these larger issues that we talk about all the time and see how they fit into what's going on in the world around us. So what will we do for the first podcast? Where do we launch this first effort? What's the first subject matter that we're going to address? Well, in the most common talk that I give, The Case for Life, the very first question that we talk about is the question of framing this issue by focusing on the single question that is most important to determine the right or wrong of this issue. Now, the first three podcasts will basically go through the case for life talks that I give. The way that I learned to talk about this from Scott Klusendorf during my time at Life Training Institute, the way that I learned to talk about it from reading the works of Greg Kokel, it stand to reason. The way that I learned to talk about this, the way that I learned to give these presentations, the way that I learned to frame the arguments from great people that went ahead of me and oftentimes picking up things from some of my peers and the people around me. What I want to do through this podcast effort is give people the best chance to represent their views in a clear, convincing, and impacting manner when you have the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody. Most of us, most people will not be doing platform speeches. Most of you won't be in front of audiences with a thousand people. Most of you won't be taking on this subject matter in front of a group of people that disagree with you. Most of us, this is going to be at the dinner table. This conversation is going to happen when it is one-on-one. -on -one. Most of us is going to happen in brief windows where we have to make our impact. And this issue particularly, when we're talking about the issue of abortion, is capable of bringing out the worst in us in a very small amount of time. There's so much emotion. We bring to it so much passion, both sides, that it can be incredibly divisive. So how do we talk about this issue? How do we frame this issue in a way that it won't be divisive? Let me tell you what I've heard multiple times. Just in the last year, I remember speaking at a school in Texas where a young woman stood up after I was done talking and she said, Mr. Watts, my twin sister won't even talk to me. I can't have a conversation with my twin sister. I've had more people tell me that they're having a difficult time talking to family members that they love over this particular issue. They're like, I cannot bridge the gap here. One young lady told me that her sister said, I won't have anything to do with you as long as you continue to hold this pro-life position, this anti-woman, this anti-choice position, as long as you're not down with women's reproductive rights, I will have nothing to do with you. There is real pain, real crisis. It's genuinely divisive. 
and divisive on a family level. And so what this aim, what the aim of this effort is to bit by bit give you the tools and equipment that you need to be able to engage this issue. When I'm asked, how do I have a conversation with somebody? How do I have a talk with somebody on this issue when we are so deeply divided that the conversation always ends up being something ugly, something hard for both of us? I tell everybody the exact same thing. This is the advice that I give pro-lifers who come to talk to me about this. I say, what I want you to do is I want you to go back to them. The next time you have the opportunity to talk, I want you to tell them that you are going to ask one single question. And what you're going to do then is give them the room, the space to answer that question. I want you to assure them that you know exactly what you think about the pro-life position. You know exactly why you defend the value of human life from the moment it comes into existence. You know why you should treat all human beings with dignity and respect. What you don't know is why they believe what they believe. And so you say, I'm going to ask a single question. And here's the question. What is the unborn? What do you think the unborn is that we're allowed to do to them what we are doing to them through the practice of elective abortion in the United States? What are they that we have no moral compunction or somebody like you has more, no moral problem with destroying about a million of them a year in the United States alone? Why do you defend the right for about 56 million of them to be killed? Somewhere between 41 and 56 million. World Health Organization say about 56 million abortions worldwide. Some other people like World Meter have a lower number, somewhere about 41 million. Why is that not troubling to you? What do you think they are that we should be free to treat them in this manner? And then I tell them, I encourage them, tell them, I'm not going to argue. I'm going to listen, but I may ask clarifying questions. That's how I encourage people to get into this conversation. To make it a safe opportunity for them to share their views. Promise not to jump on them with yours. Do everything that you can to let them answer that question, what is the unborn? Because as Greg Kokolo has said, as Scott Klusendorf has said, as everybody who's thought carefully on this has said, the right or wrong of abortion will come down to how we answer that question. If abortion is wrong, it is wrong because it unjustly takes the life of an innocent human being. If they are not the same as us, if the unborn are not the same as us in morally important ways, if we don't have the same basic duty and obligations to them that we have to anyone else, not the least of which is just to refrain from killing them, then as Greg Kokel says, abortion under those circumstances is no different than a tooth extraction. There's no moral component to it whatsoever. It's just the removal of tissue that has no value, no dignity. We have no duty or responsibility or obligations to them. But if they are human, then we have deep, deep running obligations and duties to them, whether we know them or not, whether we value them or not personally on a preferential statement, on our preferential level. So make them answer that question. What is the unborn? Now, how do we preach that? We have to recognize that there's going to be some weaknesses, some ways that we're universally having trouble in the culture. That Oftentimes, people are struggling with the same things. I've told people before when they say, do you ever get questions that you're not prepared for? I say, not only do I not usually get questions during Q&A that I'm not prepared for, I generally get the same questions, and almost all the time they come in the same order. Now, I don't mean that in a way that ought to be seen as dismissive of these questions. What I take from that is that very many people out there, a great number of people, are struggling with the exact same ways in how they evaluate this issue. That it's very common for a great number of people out there who are considering this issue at all to make the same mistakes. And so what we want to do in this episode today is clarify how we work our way 
through those mistakes as we ask for an answer to the question, what is the unborn? One of the first mistakes that people make, one of the most common mistakes that people make, as a matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of people that I talk to make the mistake of never considering the question at all. They have already assumed that the unborn are exactly the kind of thing that they're allowed to kill. They haven't sought to evaluate what they are. They haven't given serious consideration to what it is. The unborn life is just the kind of thing they're allowed to kill. They believe that by default. They have assumed the truth of their arguments without requiring or calling for any evidence to support them. This is called begging the question. They've made an assumption, a presupposition about the nature of unborn life. The unborn are the kind of thing we're allowed to kill. Now, the way that I was taught to find that, to, to identify that particular error, is to ask myself internally a question when somebody gives a justification for killing the unborn. Would they ever get that justification that they just offered for killing a two-year-old child? Would they give it for killing a 10-year-old child? Would they ever offer it as justification for killing some other human life that we all uncontroversially accept is like us? If the answer to that question is no, they would never say that it's okay to kill a two-year-old for that reason. They would never say it's okay to kill a 10-year-old for that reason. That means they have assumed that there is something fundamentally different about a two-year-old human being and a 10-year-old human being from a fetus, from an unborn human child. But they don't get to assume that. Nobody gets to make that assumption. If they're going to argue that there's something different about the unborn that we're allowed to kill them in a way that we wouldn't kill other human beings, they're going to have to argue what they are and to give us a reason, evidence for their beliefs. Now, the most common tool that we use to demonstrate that people have made that mistake is a tool called trot out the toddler. And this is how it works. Now, some variation of how you use the language in the middle of this varies. Scott Klusendorf does do different things than I do and the way that he talks his way through it, talks his way through it when he's having conversations with people on this issue. But what I do when somebody offers that objection, for example, when I was out uh, one time in Southern California, a man stood up to his faculty at the school where I was speaking. He said, Mr. Watts, women must have a right to get an abortion to protect their right to privacy. Women have a right to make private medical decisions without the interference of the state, without the interference of the community, without the interference of your religious beliefs. This is a private matter between them and their doctor. And they have a right to make that decision without your interference. Now, would he ever make that same justification if we were talking about killing a two-year-old or a ten-year-old. Of course he would. He's assumed that there's something different. Now I have to help him see that. See, I want to help you see that your job as a pro-life advocate is oftentimes teaching the person that you're talking to. Being a teacher, helping them to learn how to think things through. Not an arguer all of the time. We're using good arguments, but I like to tell people we are trying to win people with good arguments, not merely win arguments. We're trying to get them on our side. We're trying to get them to live in accordance with the truth that we believe is a best reflection, or at least the information or knowledge is a best reflection of the truth of the world around us. We believe that the unborn are valuable human beings and ought to be treated with dignity and respect. We believe the best evidence demonstrates that truth. And so we want to help them get on the right side of things. And so when I hear somebody say something like that, I don't get angry. I don't get mad. I look at it as an opportunity to instruct them, to help them to see the error that they're making. And so I told that, sir. I believe you're correct. Privacy is an important issue. As a matter of fact, Roe v. Wade says that that is the justification for abortion as a matter of privacy, a constitutionally protected right to privacy. And I'm a private guy. I'm a deeply introverted guy when I'm not on the road speaking. So I value privacy as much as you do. 
But let me ask you a question. I put my hand at my hip as if I had a small child standing next to me. And I said, imagine I have a two-year-old little girl standing next to me. She is my next-door neighbor's daughter. Imagine every night in the privacy of their own home, she is the victim of vicious abuse. Her father has created an environment of abuse in that house that is pervasive, and every day, every night, she endures terrible abuse at his hands. Would it be okay with you if we violated the privacy of my neighbor's house, went into their house, took that child out in order to protect them from that abuse? Well, he immediately said, yes, of course it would. And so I asked this question in response. Why? Why is that okay? He said, what do you mean, why? I said, well, why is that okay? Why can you violate their privacy? It's a private matter. It's happening in the privacy of their own home. What business is that of yours? What business is that of mine? He said, well, this is totally different. I said, well, why is it different? And we had some back and forth. And so finally I pushed him on it. I said, why are we allowed to violate the privacy of my next door neighbor in order to protect that child? And he, he said, because privacy is not a justification for the abuse of other human beings. And right there, I said, I agree with you. So if the unborn are human in the same way my next door neighbor's child is, then even though we both agree that privacy is an important issue, we both also agree that privacy has limitations. And you define those limitations as when another human being is abused. So the question that you have to answer now is, what is the unborn? Why? How is it different from my next door neighbor's daughter? What are the morally important differences? What are the scientific differences? What are the differences between her and them that you would protect her from abuse and violate the privacy of somebody else? But in this particular case, you would use privacy as a justification for allowing them to be destroyed. You have the responsibility to argue those differences, just like I have the responsibility to argue why I believe they're the same. We both have the responsibility to argue that. No one gets to assume it. You don't get to assume it when you're talking about poverty. You don't get to assume it when you're talking about overpopulation. You don't get to assume it when you're talking about back alley abortions. You don't get to constantly offer justifications that you would never offer for killing a human being that you uncontroversially accept as like us. So if you're doing that, if they're doing that, we have to help them to see how they can correct that and get on the right side of this argument. Now, the next mistake that people often make is that they have, a, they have a terrible time differentiating between preference claims, subjective claims, where I tell you something about me, and objective moral claims, where we talk about something external to ourselves, something that exists in a manner where we have to investigate it, consider it, rationally weigh it, uh, but determine what it is based on what it is separate from us. For example, when I talk about preference claims, I tell people all over the country, if you've ever met me, if you've ever seen me speak, it is no surprise to hear that I absolutely love Coca-Cola. I think Coca-Cola is God's most perfect drink. And when I go up north or I go to other parts of the country where they love Pepsi and I will have somebody come up to the table, a waitress, and she'll say to me, Mr. Watts, what would you like to drink? And I say, well, ma'am, I would like a Coke. Do you have Coke? And she says, yes, we do. Well, we have Pepsi. Is that okay? And they say, no. That is not okay because Coke is awesome and Pepsi is a vile, disgusting swill that ought to be expunged from the human race. Do you have tea? And up in North, they oftentimes say, yes, we do. And I said, we have sweet tea. And they said, well, yeah, but we have, no, but we have sweetener at the table. Is that okay? I said, no, because that's not the same thing. These are, these are questions of preferences. I like Pepsi. I mean, I like Coke. She may like Pepsi. People up North may like Pepsi. You don't have to like 
Coke because I do, and I don't have to like Pepsi because you do. And even though I know every time I talk about this, I usually get inundated on social media with Pepsi lovers, hashtag team Pepsi, hashtag Pepsi for life. Uh, that's not, they can't sway me over to their side simply by the, the conviction of their own preferences. We may like all sorts of different things when we're talking about our preferences. But when I'm talking to an audience and when somebody comes forth during Q&A and I always try to offer Q&A and they say to me, Mr. Watts, if you don't like abortion, then leave it alone. Have nothing to do with it, but leave it alone for the rest of us. I respond, you just heard me, but you didn't listen because I've never said once that I don't like abortion. I just gave a long presentation where I made a case that abortion is wrong. And those are two totally different things. I don't like Pepsi. I don't like red, squishy, sweet apples. Uh, there's a lot of things in this world that I don't like. I hate pickles, as a matter of fact. But when I'm talking about abortion, I'm not talking about that kind of a claim. I'm saying it's wrong. I'm saying it's objectively wrong in, in a way that where how I feel about it has nothing to do with the evaluation. As a matter of fact, I have told audiences all around the country, I don't care what your personal feelings are about it. What I want to know is what the unborn is that you're allowed to do that to them because that unborn is something external to you and me. It has an existence that is in no way dependent upon our emotional state towards it or how we feel about it. So we have to answer that question. What is it? Not do I prefer abortion or not prefer abortion. Uh, not do I like it or not like it. Not do I hate it or love it. But what is the unborn? That is the question that we have to answer. That would be in areas where we could we see this very clearly. If I said somebody walked up to me and said, Mr. Watts, child abuse is wrong. And I responded to you, well, you may not like child abuse, but I love child abuse. And I abuse my kids and every kid I can get my hand on. You would know immediately that it was morally wrong, that there was something deeply, deeply wrong about the way that I was evaluating this issue because no one's allowed to choose to be a child abuser. It's an objective moral claim on the nature of what our duties and obligations are to other human beings based on what they are. It has nothing to do with what I prefer. You don't get to prefer to be a child abuser. You don't get to prefer to be a, a murderer. You don't get to be prefer. We don't prefer to be a rapist. These aren't the kind of things that we're allowed to prefer or not to prefer. And so when we're evaluating the claim of whether or not abortion is right or wrong, we have to evaluate it on the proper terms. We can't make a category mistake and place ourselves in the wrong kind of an argument. Christians make this mistake all the time when they say things to you like, Mr. Watts, I agree with you. I'm entirely pro-life personally, but I'm politically pro-choice because I don't think I should be allowed to tell other people what they can and can't do. Well, a very brief conversation will determine that they absolutely think that they're allowed to tell people what they can and can't do in other areas where they're uncontroversially convinced that these are objective moral claims. I remember asking one gentleman that said that to me. I assume you have a mother because you're standing in front of me. He said, yes, I do. Would you have a problem with making it illegal to kill your mother? Would you have any problem telling somebody else they're not allowed to kill your mom? And if they did, would you have any problem with the law punishing them for doing that? We said, of course not. I said, well, why not? Why do you not have a problem there, but you do have a problem over here? You see, when you recognize the nature of an objective moral claim and an uncontroversial issue, you are whole cloth in to telling people they are or not allowed to do those things. The problem isn't that you have a problem, that you have an issue telling people what they can and can't do. The problem is that you don't think the unborn are like us, and you think this is an issue of preference, that they should be able to prefer this. But if, if the unborn are human in the same way that you and I are, and if abortion is the intentional destruction of innocent human life, it simply is not the kind of action that you're allowed to prefer. It's either objectively morally wrong, or it's not wrong at all. 
but the right or wrong of it cannot be determined about our emotional state towards the issue. And another mistake that people make, the final mistake that we'll cover tonight, is just a matter of assertion. They just say things. I remember a young lady, uh, and I tell audiences all the time, one of the great things about being a speaker, I see the whole audience. I see everybody in it. And so when they're sleeping, if they fall asleep, I see that. If they're staring at the phones, I see that little blue light that illuminates your face. And if you hate me, I see that. And it doesn't bother me. It can't bother me for me to do the job that I do if I were really deeply upset and going back to my hotel room every night, uh, crying myself to sleep because some high school audience member didn't like me. I couldn't function as a human being. So I don't really care. But one of the reasons that it doesn't bother me is because I'm looking for people to be motivated to engage me. So I know that somebody who just hates what I'm saying is very likely to come to the microphone during Q&A or to stand up and to offer their objection. And this one young lady stood up and she, she walked up to the mic and she said, Mr. Watts, women have a right to choose. Women have a right to choose. This is an assertion. She's not arguing for anything. She's just declaring something. In this particular case, she's not even being clear about what it is she's declaring. I heard her, and I said, okay, I hear you. So would you mind if I ask you a question in response, or ask you to respond to something that I say? And she said, certainly. I said, women have a right to take. Women have a right to take. I learned that, by the way, from Greg Kokel. She looked at me, and she said, take what? I said, exactly. Choose what? You declared that women have a right to choose, but that you didn't explain the nature of the choice that women have the right to choose. I said, would you be perfectly all right with walking across this room and taking some possession for one of your classmates and keeping it from your, for your own against their will? Would that be the kind of thing that you're allowed to choose? She said, of course not. I said, why can't you choose that? And she said, well, because that is stealing. Incident stealing is what? And she said, wrong. I said, that's right. So we both recognize that there are choices that you're allowed to make, and we both agree that there are a whole number of choices that we would both wholeheartedly support you making. But in this particular case, we've come upon a kind of choice, the choice to steal that we both recognize as morally problematic. Women have a right to choose where they live, where they work, who they marry, whether they marry, where they go to church, where they go to school, what they wear, all sorts of things. And all of these are legitimate choices. Women don't have the right to steal because stealing is itself morally wrong. And that's the case that I made when I'm talking about the issue of abortion. It's morally wrong. If you say women have a right to choose, you have to very, very clarify the nature of the choice that you think women are allowed to make. And I'll respond as you argue from the position of supporting that statement, that assertion with evidence, with evidence of the unborn or human in the same way that you and I are. I'll use science and philosophy as I have made my case for the last 30 or 40 minutes, as I told that young lady, there are a lot of arguments out there for the pro-choice position, and you didn't offer any of them. What you did was offer an assertion, and assertions are not arguments. As Greg Cunningham once said, we're just shouting our conclusions at each other. We have to get to the tough business of arguing. Focus on the question, what is the unborn? Make them answer, look for them to make mistakes in how they're approaching that. Use this as an opportunity to teach them about the, the mistakes that people are making in the way that they're thinking about this issue without burdening them at this point with your position at all. Oftentimes, you can get a lot of work done in a conversation with somebody if you just listen and ask questions. I'll end very briefly on this story. I got done speaking, 
at a school in California. Again, in Southern California, a young man came out to me very angry and confronted me when I was done, called me inhumane about the position that I was holding. And I started asking questions of his position. I started just, I didn't, I'd already given my case. I just, I want to understand what you believe, what they are. Why are we allowed to kill them? He went through a whole series of arguments and ultimately he said that what makes human beings valuable is rational capacities. And so as he pointed out that the, the kind of rational capacities he was talking didn't exist and a newborn child asked him if it was okay to kill a newborn. And he said, absolutely. And in order to be consistent with my view, I would have to say it's okay to kill a newborn. I pointed out, by the way, there's no virtue in a vicious consistency, but let's continue talking about this. I said, so if you have an onion on the table and you have a newborn child, and if we're going to take this argument that what makes them valuable is that they're rational, and if we take Peter Singer's argument that there's nothing wrong with killing a newborn prior to the uh, attainment of that idea of conscious awareness, and if you're backing that view, now Peter Singer would say as long as there's no other human being that has conscious awareness, that has desires for that child to continue to live, it's not the kind of thing that can be wrong. I said, would you agree with that? He said, yes. I said, okay, we have an onion on the table and a newborn child that has no relations, nobody that wants to continue to be lived. And I start to cut a knife through that onion and I continue and cut it straight through that newborn child. Are you telling me that you believe those are morally the same? And he said, yes. Now, here's the final tip as I close tonight. We use a, a tool called narrating the conversation. So in order to make sure that I haven't misspoken about their views, I said, can we go over what's been said so far? And he said, sure. And I said, if I in any way say something that is not actually the way that you're seeing, not actually the way that you're arguing, that doesn't really reflect the arguments you're making, please correct me. I said, when this argument started, when this discussion started, you came up to me and you called me inhumane. And he held his hand up and he said, let's just stop right there. He said, why? And he said, I came up to you and I called you inhumane. And I just said that there's actually no moral difference between cutting up an onion and cutting up an orphan's newborn child. And I said, Yes, that's what you're arguing. And without me having to make a great case, just letting him say what he believes and asking clarifying questions, pointing out areas where I was confused about how that would be consistent with other things he was saying, without me having to beat him down with my case at all, but just allow him to share his views, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I have a lot to think about. I just realized that I had a lot of strong opinions, but not any great arguments. I have to really reconsider my view on this. So let's end there today. The idea that if we get them to answer the question, what are the unborn? If we continue to ask clarifying questions about their view, if we put the pressure on them long before we ever start to make our case, which will start on the next podcast, we can get a lot of work done without even having to argue our view at all. Because oftentimes the best cure for bad ideas is for people to hear themselves saying them out loud. This has been Jay Watts on the Merely Human Ministries podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey, everybody, this is Jay Watts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, if you're looking for more resources and more content, please go to our website, merelyhumanministries.org. That's merelyhumanministries.org. Or find us on Facebook at Merely Human Ministries Incorporated. Merely Human Ministries, I-N-C where we try to keep up to date on things that are happening in the world. Find us on the web. We are building a resource library for your use to equip you to be able to engage this issue in your life and impacting the convincing world.